Houston, Indianapolis Center, do you have any test operation restricted area 2508? Area 31, Roger. Traffic is quite luminous and is exhibiting some non-ballistic motion, over. Roger, Aries 31. Continue to send at your discretion, over. Okay, Center. The traffic is approaching head-on, ultra-bright, and really moving. They're right by us, right now. There are a thousand UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies, but a better term is X-Files. Join us now as Mac Wanwan and Commander Cobra explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Mac Maloney's Military Exile Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. We have a special kind of show for you tonight. It's uh, some live bits and some uh, greatest hits, uh, but helping me in this endeavor in the studio with me tonight is the lovely Lois Lane. Hi, Mac. Hi, everybody. Get ready for a fun night. Fun night. Are you strapped in? Are you ready? That's the question. Oh, me? I thought you were asking the audience. I'm ready. <laughs> you can see okay. I didn't miss a beat. And you are strapped in, as it turns out. Okay, <laughs> good. Well, listen, why don't we do, uh, without further ado, why don't we just tell people how they can get their bag of swag? Well, if you want some cool merch from the show, all you have to do is go to MacMaloney.com, click the Contact Us button, send us your home address so we can actually snail mail you a bag filled with swag. Okay. And it will have things like pins and coasters and other surprises. Mm -hmm. uh, buttons, family pins, 3D decals, um, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so just uh, send us your mailing address. Um, go to MacMoney.com, hit the contact button, and uh, send us an email that includes a mailing address. Because the funny thing is, is um, we've given lots of this stuff away already, but people will just send me an email and say, uh, send me the swag. You know, a nice letter or whatever, but say, send me the swag, and they don't realize that. You need to actually mail it, right. yes. as I said, through snail mail. It so doesn't <laughs> magically go through you know, yes. the computer. Yes, mailing address, please, so, everyone. Anyway. Yeah, the bag of swag. And uh, let, what else can we do? Uh, what we should do, uh, we can do the plugs right now. Uh, hopefully, uh, people are donating to Homes for Our Troops. Homes for Our Troops is a organization that um, takes your donations, 88 cents of every dollar, and puts it to building homes for uh, veterans, post-9-11 veterans, uh, the war in Iraq, war in uh, Afghanistan, um, folks who have you know lost their uh, legs or their arms or have some kind of disability. Uh, because of the war, um, and what they do is that they build them these homes that uh, are very accessible for someone in their situation, lower counter space, um, stairs that are easy to, uh, a little easier to get up and down, things of that nature, and when they build them the house and then they just give them the mortgage, they don't have to pay for it. They give it to them for free. Now, these people deserve it. Uh, they put their lives on the line uh, for us. And, uh, you know, I think the Veterans Administration and the government should be doing this, but that's another show. They rely on your donations, okay? Homes for Our Troops, it's a very worthy cause, a very good organization. It's not a charity. It's something that we have a moral obligation to do for these veterans. So, please, Homes for Our Troops and donate. 
super worthy cause. And if you are looking to help somebody, this is a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And nice people, too. They're on the show a lot. So yeah. Homes for our Troops. Okay, so I think that's it as far as the plugs are concerned. Is it? I'm looking at you, Lois, like you would know. <laughs> well, I do know. Sometimes you mentioned the mosquito, so. I oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, the People's Mosquito Project, uh, where our shop and his mad Englishman friends are uh, putting together a um, putting back together a warp plane from uh, World War II, made of wood, two big Rolls Royce engines on it. It was one of the fastest uh, planes in World War II. It was so fast that. It outran the bullets. Wow. Juan Juan must have taught you that. Okay. That's <laughs> I pe- do pay attention. The People's Mosquito Project. And uh, also, uh, I should say, Wingman 21 is coming up very soon. If it's not out already, go on Amazon.com. Uh, Wingman 21, it's called the Jericho Storm. Um, you know, people who have read it uh, before publication seem to like it. So um, if I've you- heard it called your best one yet. <laughs> who, who said that? Me? Uh, the jericho storm just go on amazon and uh see if it's up there yet i'm the last to know and um you know give it a shot if you've never read a wingman book before this would be a good one to read Mm. wow so we get the plugs out of the way and it's just the beginning of the show they launched oh my goodness we are so efficient um so um why don't we do this why don't we explain that we have some uh we have one um oldie but goodie uh from a couple years ago where i uh interview a woman who wrote a book on DAPA, which is like the mad scientist of the Pentagon. And then um, we have uh, just different things that um, have come up in the studio tonight. Is that it, Lois? I think that's it. And they will be fascinated if they haven't heard of DARPA before. Um, there is just, it's remarkable what went on. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, they are literally the mad scientists of the Pentagon. Yeah. It's really a great story. And the inventions that came out of it are Right, Amazing. really crazy. And also, I think we're probably going to have a Sky Club music collection at the end of the show. So it's uh, everything wrapped up in a bow there, Lois. Mm, it's a bit of a smorgasbord big tonight, word. everybody. Wow, big word. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not asking them to spell it. <laughs> well, I know. I didn't know you spoke <laughs> Swedish. Well, there's many things you don't know about me, Mac. Really? Okay. Really? Wow, there's another show. That's <laughs> definitely a Mac after Doc. So why don't we do this? Why don't we uh, take a commercial break now? And get on with the show. You're listening to Macaloni's Military Style Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed, the Phantom Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now, get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com.
Welcome back, everyone, to Mac Maloney's Militrax House Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. Wow, what a show we have for you tonight. Uh, but first, let me introduce you to the very lovely Lois Lane, who is here with us. Hi, Mac. Hi, everybody. Are you enjoying yourself tonight, Lois? I'm getting an education, actually. I really? Okay. So you didn't have to go to school. You didn't have to go to college. No, I just have to tune in to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. There you go. We'll have to make that a bumper. <laughs> um, tonight, we're going to be talking about this very strange uh, place in the Himalayas called Asai Chin, Aksai Chin. And it's a region of the Himalayas up in the one of the worst, most inhospitable parts of the planet, way up in the Himalayas. Um, the border between China and India is almost unmarked. Very few people live there. It's just uh, treacherous high mountains, gorges. It's ice all the time, lots of snow. Very, very isolated place. But what's strange about this place is over the years, uh, people on both sides of the border have claimed that it's a place where a lot of UFOs are seen landing. A lot of UFOs are seen coming out of the gorges and the uh, topography there, it's just a hot spot for UFOs, even though it's in one of the most isolated places on Earth. Ever hear of this place, Lois? Well, I read about it in a book by you, Mac Maloney. Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> what a coincidence. But anyway, um, the connection to this uh, in uh, military exiles is this. There's a place in China about 300 miles from Beijing and about 1,500 miles away from Aksai Chin where the Chinese military, out in the middle of the desert, has built this uh, scale model replica of, of all places, the region called Aksai Chin. It was built to a scale of 1 to 500. It's very, very detailed. It shows all kinds of um, treacherous uh, roads and, as I say, uh, gorges and high mountains, um, just one of the worst places on Earth. But for one reason or another, we don't know why, Chinese military decided to build this very, very elaborate and large recreation of this place in um, up in the Himalayas. No one knows why. They're not telling anybody. It was built close to a military base, Chinese military base, and it's actually out in the desert. There's been a lot of speculation. Why would they do this? Now, the U.S. military, like out west in Nevada and in California, they build replicas of things like uh, villages that our soldiers might come up across in the Middle East, places in Southeast Asia where our soldiers might have to fight someday. These places are places where you go and you practice how to you know, take over buildings, how to fight in the desert, how to fight in the woods, how to fight near the ocean, and so on. But they're built to full scale. In fact, they actually uh, hire actors from the local population to uh, play the bad guys. There's a huge one down in North Carolina. Uh, where people play these war games all the time. Citizens are recruited to be the enemy, and our soldiers go down there and uh, practice fighting them in the in the uh, in the middle of the uh, woods. It's called Pine Land. So anyway, getting back to this place in China, um, people have speculated. Well, why would the Chinese do this? Now, um, it when you see this from Google Earth, when you see it shot from a satellite. It looks like this place, Aksai Chin, even though it's 1,500 miles to the east of it. Um, in fact, that's how it was first discovered. Someone was looking at Google Earth, a researcher, and he saw this place and said, wow, this is like 1,500 miles away from where it should be. And then on closer inspection, he uh, found out and others later found out that 
This is just this recreation, this scale model that the Chinese for some reason built there. Um, some people speculated that it might be of use to their pilots, their fighter pilots, their helicopter pilots. But, you know, why? Once again, why? Out in this very, very isolated, crazy place uh, on uh, near the Himalayas. Now, let's just go into some of the uh, history of this Oxide Chin. We have to go back to October of 1962. And lots of people um, will remember, or if you read your history books, you realize that this was the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Basically what happened, the Russians put nuclear missiles in Cuba that were um, powerful enough and had the range enough to hit Washington, D.C., hit all the major cities in the United States. So in other words, the Russians basically put a nuclear missile base right off of the uh, coast of Florida, 90 miles away from Florida. This caused one of the uh, biggest crises ever in uh, U.S. history. Russia and the United States came very, very close to having a nuclear war. If they did, none of us would be around now talking about it. And uh, it went on for about two weeks. And if you lived through it, you know what anxiety is because you just expect it at any minute to hear the sirens, air raid sirens going off. And then that would be it, baby, for mankind. Well, while this was happening in the United States and Cuba, during the same time, India and China fought a war, where else? In Aksai Chin. They actually fought a war over the border between their two countries in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. So you take that little piece of evidence, and then you think, uh, you know, what is going on these days, why they would build this exact recreation of this place. It just doesn't make any sense. But it turns out that, once again, the native people there have... Um, been reporting for years that this is actually a hotspot for UFO sightings, and there's a lot of evidence uh, to back them up. Do you remember the story, Lois, about the uh, researcher who went there and ta talked to the school kids that live kind of close to Aksai Chin? Yeah, there was a drawing contest that they put out for the kids to participate in, and they said, draw something from your everyday life. So the children many of them actually drew scenes of UFOs coming from this area. And that just speaks to the fact that these oddities are going on on a regular basis there. And, and the unusual thing, too, about um, the kids who were drawing these drawings were uh, they live in villages that are so isolated, there are no TVs there. There's no comic books. There's no movies, nothing. They don't have, They didn't have anything that would influence them to draw flying saucers. Basically, they were told, draw something that you see every day, and more than half these kids drew flying saucers. So you have that now. You have the fact that China and India fought a war over this place for absolutely no reason. It lasted a month, and then the Chinese declared victory, and then they went away. It turns out that uh, the conditions were so, once again, inhospitable, not just to living, but in combat, that... Uh, there were more soldiers on both sides that died because of the conditions, the weather conditions, frostbite and things like that, than died by uh, shooting at each other. Um, also, it turns out that this area, Aksai Chen, has a long, long history of UFOs uh, sightings, not just recently. Uh, there are stories about how uh, back in the Tibetan um, myths, let's say, lots of UFOs show up. There was a letter from a um, Belgian priest who was visiting the area in the 1600s, and he saw this thing that he compared to a Chinese hat doubled with lots of lights on it, very kind of fantastic. 
It, it circled the village where he was staying. You know, it wasn't trying to uh, be hidden, wasn't trying to hide itself from people. People came out on the streets and looked at it. This um, Belgian priest couldn't believe what he was seeing. Finally, he talked to uh, someone who was uh, living at the monastery that he was visiting, and he said, this kind of stuff happened all the time, right, Lois? Right, and he wrote a letter back to back home to a friend, so it's documented, and this was in the 1600s. So uh, this part of the world, for whatever reason, you know, not many people there, but uh, it turns out that there's a lot of UFO activity there. So let's so now let's just kind of put all that into perspective. First of all, you had a war fought there in 1962, a war that made absolutely no sense. Secondly, the people there now say they see UFOs all the time. Third, young kids, when told to draw something that they see in everyday life, they draw UFOs. Uh, fourth, these things have been around for years and documented evidence of people seeing them back in the 1600s. So then you go back to, okay, this, this question, why did the Chinese military spend all this time and money to, to create a 1 to 500 scale model of this very isolated place? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, there, it's so puzzling because what would it be for? It's not for them to train in train or it because what would be the reason? So it just leaves you with a lot of questions. Right. So one of the things that um, might be a clue to this is um, a good friend, Chris, Christopher O'Brien, who's a UFO researcher. He's been on the show a number of times. He's the guy who is the expert on what's going on in the St. Louis Valley in Colorado, uh, where people see all kinds of strange things all the time, UFOs, but also shadow people, you know, flying humanoids, airplanes disappearing, um, you know, husses and, and uh, cattle being mutilated, being levitated, uh, weird lights in cemeteries. St. Louis Valley is a very, very strange place. And what that has to displace Aksai Chin is that it is also um, a, a location of where um, plate tectonics, is that how you say that? That's exactly right. Okay. Because it's the Himalayas, it's the, the Asian and the Euro Eurasian um, plates, Pl and they are constantly under pressure there. Mm -hmm. They're bumping up against each other, and that's what creates uh, mountains of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like the Himalayas and also the Rocky Mountains. So those two places have this in common. And his, um, Christopher O'Brien's theory was that, um, and, and other people have said this too, is that for some reason uh, where these plate tectonics crash up against each other, creating mountains and all these gorges and so on. And a lot of times, a lot of people don't live near these places because they're just so inhospitable to live in or near. For some reason, lots of UFOs are seen in these areas. And his theory, I know, was that, hey, look, at you know, there could be UFOs operating underground inside these mountains coming out during the day, but because there's so few people around, you know, the area actually seeing them, they can kind of come and go. Uh, with Im immunity. Um, other people have, um, you know, said the same things, that the, that maybe seismic activity attracts UFOs. We don't know. But now we have to go back to the question, which we're not going to answer tonight. It's just so very odd. Why, of all places, the Chinese uh, expected to, you know, fight a war or train their troops in, why would they do it at this place where they fought a war in 1962, where they lost more men to the climate, and the weather than they did shooting at each other. It's really a mystery, Lois. 
It absolutely is, Mac. And it just makes you wonder what is really going on over there. And you know, you talked about the the seismic activity, and not only am I getting a history lesson, but a science lesson too. But that's a lot of people talk about um, the areas where it's called like a veil, where there's a, a just an opening and or portal, if you will, mm-hmm. to the outside connections, and mm-hmm. that's where odd things like this often takes place. Mm-hmm. So it also goes to some people who uh, think, and I know that. Uh, uh, Switchy is one of these people who at least is interested in this theory that UFOs might be from like the center of the earth. Maybe they're not from outer space at all. And if that was true, I mean, it's kind of far-fetched, but if that was true, this is where one of these portals would be because these, as I say, the gorges are just so deep there because of the plate tectonics hitting up against each other that if, uh, you know, you were in the middle of the earth and you needed to get out, it would probably be in one of these places. Yeah, well, there would be an opening, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, to me, the, the, you know, the clearest evidence is that if you go and ask kids, and you know this because you're a teacher in your real life, dear Lois, um, you know, if you ask them, draw something, you know, uh, everyday life, I mean, what would your kids draw? Well, they would draw them playing football, they would draw their um, playing video games, but they, everyday life would not include UFOs, not around here. But you know, that it's, it, it's like the innocence of uh, them just uh, doing what they're told to do, and all of a sudden, you know, well, not all of a sudden, but you know, more than two-thirds of the kids in this particular class drew UFOs. It's just like really crazy. So there's just no answer to this. It's just one of those mysteries, you know. The name of the place, again, is where they built uh, this replica is Hanyang Tan in China. And they built it of this Hakusai Chin up in the uh, Himalayas. Uh, UFO hotbed. Strange war fought there for some reason. Lots of people see UFOs. What's the connection? We just don't know. It's hard to say. There are no answers. Just leads you to more questions. Right, right. But there's a lot of evidence that something's going on. It's not just made up. So it really makes you puzzle. Right. So anyway, hey, listen, that was interesting, right, Lois? It was. As I told you, we got a history lesson and a science Maybe lesson. Maybe we should take a trip there, you and I, to Aksai Chin up in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go somewhere warmer, please. Okay, yeah, me too. <laughs> well, you're listening to Macaloni's Military Exile Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. We've all heard of Area 51, the U.S. government's top secret base in the Nevada desert. But have you ever heard of Area 52 or 53 or 54? 54? 54? How about Tonopah Test Range or the Navy's secret base inside the Bermuda Triangle? Find out about them and more in Mac Maloney's Beyond Area 51, Mysteries of the World's Most Forbidden Places. Did Richard Nixon show Jackie Gleason a crashed alien spaceship near the swamps of Florida? Is it true that more UFOs are seen over a small Scottish village than anywhere else in the world? And is there a secret place in Russia that some people think is heaven on earth? In Mac Maloney's Beyond Area 51, you'll visit more than a dozen top secret places around the globe. The haunted forests of New Jersey. A valley in Colorado where shadows come alive and humans can fly without wings. And where's the only secret base in America that's not been visited by UFOs? You've heard Mac talk all about these places on his radio show. Now you can read all about them yourself. That's Mac Maloney's Beyond Area 51, Mysteries of the World's Most Forbidden Places. Now on sale at Amazon.
Welcome back, everyone, to Mac Maloney's Military Exile Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. I'm here with the very lovely Lois Lane. Hi, Mac. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. Is it really, Lois? Oh, is it really? Yes, of course it is. Okay. It's always good to be with you. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did I throw you off there? <laughs> We're going to be talking tonight about a topic that has uh, been an interest of me since I was a little kid. Now, as uh, some regular listeners of the show might know, my father was a veteran of World War II, as was your father, Lois. Yes. Uh, they both fought in the Pacific. My father was four years in the Navy. And um, while he was there, he developed an interest in military history. So um, when he came home, he started reading books about military history. And then as I was growing up, these books were around the house. And uh, before I could read, I would uh, pick them up and just look at the pictures and then when I could read, I would actually read the books. And a lot of them had to do with aircraft of World War II. And that's what really got my interest in military history. So we're going to talk tonight about how some designs came out of World War II uh, by all sides. They were trying to get, you know, a one-up on uh, the enemy to see if they could build in technological um, advances into their aircraft, which would give them an advantage over the enemy, as we said. And probably one of the most famous airplanes of World War II was the Japanese Zero Fighter. Now, here's why this was such an unusual airplane. First of all, it was designed back in the late 30s, but it's almost like a design that would come out of the 50s. It was very, very much advanced, and they did a lot of things that uh, no other aircraft designers had done before. Like, for instance, the Japanese military went to the designers and they said, this is what we want. These are the specifications for this airplane. We wanted to be able to go more than 300 miles an hour, which was pretty fast in the late 30s. We wanted to be able to fly up to eight hours because the war in the Pacific, a lot of it was uh, fought around these islands that were just strung out from Japan all the way down to Australia and to the South China Sea, vast distances between them. So you needed airplanes that could fly a long way, get into combat, and then fly a long way back. So the Japanese uh, military wanted this Zero Fighter to be able to fly for six to eight hours, which was a very long time for an airplane back then. It also had to be heavily armed because if it got into combat, they wanted to make sure they won that combat and still have the airplane return home. So they put two machine guns on it, which a lot of uh, airplanes back then had, but they also put two cannons on it. And cannons are basically, simply put, they're just large machine guns there. The, the round that they shoot is much larger, um, probably by comparison. It might take up to 50, 60 bullets from a machine gun to shoot down a plane, but if you hit a plane with two or three cannon shots, they make holes in it you know, big enough that would destroy the plane right away. So it was a very, very heavily armored airplane for its time, and it had two cannons, not just one. Um, so what they had to do is to meet these specifications is – had a lot of, uh, as I say, armament on it, had to fly a long way. And the rule of thumb in airplane design is the lighter you can make the plane, the less fuel it takes for it to fly and to go long distances. So that's what the Japanese had in mind. They said, let's make this super fighter, but let, we have to make it ultra, ultra light so it can fly those long distances and so on. So what they did was the designers actually uh, took a technology from the Germans, who were their allies at the time, for this new um, age kind of metal called aluminum. I mean, aluminum is all around us now, but back then it was like this kind of newfangled, new technological alloy that you could build things of. It was kind of lightweight, but it had some strength to it. 
So they said, well, maybe the way we can do this is to build this airplane, the Japanese Zero, of aluminum, and uh, so it can carry a lot of fuel, so it won't use a lot of fuel, but it will be able to support an engine, which was a powerful engine, to carry it the long distances and also give it an advantage when it's fighting against other planes, you know, in the so-called dogfights. So that's what they did. They built the plane of aluminum, but they also did things like they didn't want to have a whole lot of drag on it, so the rivets were actually flush into the fuselage. And then the interior of the plane, the frame of the plane, what they did was um, they would carve out holes or they'd drill out holes in the frame itself just to save on weight. Um, and uh, sure enough, when the thing started to fly, when they started to test it, it actually, um, some of them would go up to 330 miles an hour. It could climb six miles high. It could support uh, these four guns, two machine guns, and two cannons. And as it turned out, because it was so light, it was very, very maneuverable. So if it was up against a plane that might be 10 years old, uh, it might be at a turn uh, 180 degrees in 10 seconds where it would take maybe up to a minute for the older plane to uh, do the same thing. Big advantage in a dogfight. Um, now, there were uh, certain disadvantages to this kind of design. Number one, there was no armor at all on the plane. Now, in most warplanes, what they do is they put armor, first of all, around the cockpit to protect the pilot, um, to stop any bullets or any kind of um, ordnance coming in on him. Um, also, they would put armament around the fuel tanks, and they had these things called self-sealing fuel tanks, that if there was a hole in the fuel tanks, they were actually inside a rubber bladder that had this kind of epoxy in there, and the epoxy would fill up the hole and would self-seal the, the uh, fuel tank which would, um, you know, save the fuel, but it would also cut down the chances that um, the airplane would catch on fire. None of that was in the Japanese Zeros. No protection at all for the pilot, no protection at all for the fuel tanks. So what happened was if you were able to get one to two shots into a Japanese Zero, if you were able to catch it, if you were able to outmaneuver it, it would really just explode into a ball of flame. It's a philosophy that... Um, we did not share with the Japanese. Basically, the pilot was worth was not worth as much as winning the war or winning the dogfight or winning the combat. Um, you know, in the Western philosophy, they did everything they could to protect the pilots to see if they could bring them home alive. The Japanese philosophy at the time was just the opposite. So you had this very lightweight, very maneuverable, fast plane with all these guns on it, uh, but the person flying it, you know, if something happened, it was just, uh, you know, they were out of luck. That's just the way it went. So they, the Japanese military bought these planes and um, bought a lot of them. Now, uh, the, the other thing, other disadvantage of it was that this was actually a plane that the Japanese Navy wanted. So they had to operate. The original intention was for them to operate from aircraft carriers. And what that means is that the wings have to be uh, shorter. So because on aircraft carriers, storage is uh, the prime thing. You have to get a GM and store as many airplanes on the carrier as you can so they can't have really long wings. Um, that changed later on in the war when the Japanese military started flying them from land bases. But that was a disadvantage uh, for the uh, for the Zero. But it was, that was one of the few things. Other than that, it wasn't really survivable if uh, it got caught on the wrong side of a dogfight. Uh, but for the first two years, it was so much more technologically advanced over Allied fighters that at one point there was a 12 to 1 kill ratio, meaning for every zero our side shot down, they shot down 12 of our planes. Wow. That's how 
technologically advanced the Japanese era was. And, uh, you know, for a while, the Americans, the Allied cause, didn't know how they were going to, um, you know, how they were going to counter this. Now, a couple things kind of happened which uh, turned the tide in the Allies' favor. First of all, in uh, 1942, the Japanese invaded the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. It's the first and only time that the Japanese actually set foot on territory that belonged to the United States. Now, they did this as kind of a diversionary tactic while they were um, trying to um, take over Midway and other islands further down in the Pacific, down the South Pacific. But there was a small little war up there, and um, during it, a Japanese Zero pilot uh, had to crash land his plane. Uh, He survived. He got out, but he left the plane behind. So later on, American forces found this almost intact Japanese Zero, and this was the first time that they had a chance to get their hands on one. They sent it to a uh, air base in the United States where engineers pulled it apart, and now all of a sudden they're finding out the secrets of this thing. They found out that the reason it was so maneuverable and so um, fuel efficient, let's say, is that, as we were saying before, it was made of just this thin aluminum. There was no armor weighing it down around the pilot, no armor around the fuel tanks, nothing. And I just wanted to, uh, just as an example, the uh, thickness of the aluminum uh, that they used in the Japanese Zero was 0.02 millimeters, okay? For everyone here in the United States, um, that is approximately the width of um, a cereal box, the cardboard in a cereal box. You know what I mean, Lois? I do. Okay, it's, it's nothing. You can just barely put your two fingers together to show what uh, 0.2 millimeters are, but that's all, the, that's all the protection that the Japanese pilot had and which was no protection at all. Our American fighters, Allied fighters, were um, made of much thicker material, much thicker metal, and they were also armored. Now, because, you know, just as a side, because they were armored and that they were, um, that the metal was thicker than the aluminum on the Japanese fighter, they, the Americans had to give more powerful engines to their airplanes to, so they could fly the long distance, so they could, you know, hopefully uh, win in combat and so on and so forth. Okay, so now they have this Japanese Zero in their hands, and um, these engineers pulled it apart, put it back together flew it and started flying it against our own Allied aircraft and figured out, okay, what's the best way to beat a Japanese Zero in combat? And no one had ever been able to figure this out before. So one of the things they found, though, first of all, is they told American pilots, do not get in a dogfight with a Japanese Zero because he's always going to beat you because they can turn quicker, they're much more maneuverable, and they have a lot of firepower. So what they would do is they would fly, the American airplanes would fly very, very high, they would look for Japanese zeros below them. They would dive on them, shoot them as they're diving, and then just get out of there. It was called zoom and zoom. And uh, this actually worked, but the thing is that you had to be in an advantage spot to actually see Japanese zeros flying below you. And remember, that the Japanese zero could fly six miles high. So another maneuver that they came up with was um, invented by this pilot, and his name was Thatch, as it turned out. So they called it the Thatch Weave, which to me sounds like some kind of a, uh, I don't know. Like a hairdo? Like a hairdo <laughs> or something, about putting together like a blanket or something, oh, you know? Oh, yeah, sure. Thatch Weave, anyway. And what this was is that you would have two American planes flying side by side, the flight leader and the wingman. If a Japanese Zero happened to get on the tail of uh, one of the planes, which is your most vulnerable spot, what they would do is they would start weaving in and out of each other. They would they would head for each other and weave in and out, in and out. 
So what that means is if the Japanese Zero stayed on the tail of the first plane, eventually he would come he would come across, he'd crisscross the second American plane, and the second American plane would have him in his gun sights and shoot him down. Okay, so <clears throat> that was a system, that was a tactic that gave the Americans an advantage. The problem is, is that you need two airplanes to defeat one mm -hmm. Japanese plane, okay? So, but, so eventually what really happened was, even though the Japanese Zero was this kind of really far out, advanced technological airplane for the time, what, what, it made the Americans do was, as I said before, build these more powerful airplanes, more armored airplanes, airplanes that had um, more uh, guns on them and cannons. One of them was the um, the Hellcat, um, which was a carrier-based plane. And once Hellcats kind of uh, got into the air, got into the war, then this whole kill ratio uh, started to come down, uh, not in the Japanese favor, but in our favor. And all of a sudden, now we're shooting them down. We shoot down 10 of theirs um, for one of ours, okay? So the tide, like, started to turn. And then um, as um, the war, you know, kind of got to, towards its conclusion, 1944 1945, here were these Japanese Zeros, which just a couple years before was like the state-of-the-art airplane. The Japanese were so desperate that they started using them as kamikazes. They took the machine guns and the cannons off of them. They loaded them with bombs, and they basically instructed their pilots to be armed drones and uh, with suicide attacks, kamikaze attacks, uh, would fly right into American ships. A very desperate tactic, but, you know, once again, that was their philosophy. And so the tide turned, and by the end, 44-45, the Japanese Zero, as I said, which was this kind of shining example just a few years ago, of, you know, this unbelievably advanced aircraft. Basically, now they're using them as kind of drones, you know, kind of steered drones on suicide missions. That's fascinating. And to think of all the advances that it led to just because everybody was trying to outdo one another. Mm -hmm. Right. One more other thing, an interesting story about the Japanese Zero. Um, and it really has nothing to do with airplanes, as it turns out. Now, on um, December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, the Americans shot down 30 planes, okay, 30 airplanes. Some of them were Zeros. And what someone noticed somewhere along the line was that when one of these Japanese Zeros crashed, the entire plane would just, because we were talking about how combustible it is, would just, you know, burn away, burn away, except the propeller. And no one really knew why. Now, at the same time, our submarines were basically the only line of defense we had against the Japanese for about six months uh, after the war started because all of our ships, a lot of our ships in Pearl Harbor were, had been sunk and the aircraft carriers weren't up to snuff and they were kind of protecting the aircraft carriers. So to bring the war to Japan, we only had our submarines. The problem was is that the torpedoes that our submarines were using, a lot of them turned out to be duds. And the reason was because the firing pin and the head of the torpedo and the wall head of the torpedo was made of this very brittle metal, and it would actually snap off before it would reach its target. So a lot of them were duds. And the problem was if you are in a submarine, a U.S. submarine, and you fire a torpedo at a Japanese warship and it's a dud, you give your position away and they're going to sink you. Okay, so it's like double trouble. And, and, and all, the first six months of the war... A lot of our submarines were lost just for that reason. Now, why didn't they fix this the warhead on these torpedoes? It's a whole other show, but it turns out, and I don't know if you can believe this or not, Lois, but there were some admirals in the U.S. Navy 
in America, nowhere near the combat zone, who are allegedly on the take from the people who are making these torpedoes, and they refuse to change the firing pin in it. Yeah, I mean... It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful, but these things happen. It's how it is to believe. So what happened was the people at Pearl Harbor, without telling these big admirals and so on, they said, why is this Japanese Zero propeller, why does it survive when the rest of the plane burns away when they're shot down and crash? So they actually took one of the propellers, they ground it down and made a bunch of the firing pins from it, and it turned out it was... The, the propeller, like the rest of the Japanese Zero, was made of aluminum, but it was actually kind of like reinforced aluminum. Mm. And so they make these firing pins out of this out of the Japanese propellers, put them in the American torpedoes, and what happens? You know, they don't break, and all of a sudden our, um, you know, our success with the torpedoes goes through the roof, okay? It, it's too bad that that's the way they had to come upon the answer to this, but that's what happened. And when that happened, the tide in the in the uh, naval battles of the Pacific really started to turn in our favor because now we had torpedoes that actually worked. And it all came from the propeller of this you know, really advanced Japanese Zero. They helped us. Their technology actually helped us beat them in the war. Isn't that strange? It's really amazing just to think that um, somebody noticed that and then took it upon themselves to then almost reverse engineer it right. to say, wow, and what can we do with this? Right. And they put those pieces together. Right. Someone just, you know, it, the, the thought just came into their mind. Why does the propeller survive the plane crash? Why doesn't it burn up? Well, it's just a little bit stronger than the rest of the plane. They thought, hey, why don't we try these in our torpedoes? But a bang, they worked. Hmm. Wow. It's amazing. It is amazing. So anyway, so as I said earlier at the beginning of the uh, segment, both of our fathers fought in World War II, and I think that's very that's amazing. Now, um, my father, as I said, was there for four years. He was on a ship in the Pacific. But your father, we've talked about this on the uh, show many times, your father was in the Marines, and he was actually the youngest Marine to land on Okinawa, the last big battle of World War II. That is true, and the only reason I know that is because he told you mm-hmm. <clears throat> way later. He never talked about it with any of us. We didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Until one day, he just opened up to you, and it was eye-opening for our, the rest of my family. Yeah, he had some real, um, yeah, I don't want to, I guess we could call them horror stories from uh, when he was on Okinawa, because Okinawa was just this horrible battle, the last battle of World War II, and uh, here he is, he's a kid. He's a kid, and he's running around with machine guns, and he says it was just awful. It was just like a nightmare, and um, the Okinawa landings took place on April 1st, and it was also Easter Sunday, and one of the things he said was when he was on the landing craft heading into the beach, he thought to himself, well, on one hand, it's Easter Sunday, so, you know, God might be looking down on me. But on the other hand, it's April Fool's. <laughs> That's very much him, you know, that you know, he'd say something like that. And who knows, you know. So, um, yeah, so just he, interesting stories, and I might as well tell this part, too, is uh, so after the Battle of Okinawa was over, and um, the United States dropped two nuclear bombs in Japan and ended the war. Uh, he went to Japan for about six months as a, kind of an occupation force, and then he went back to the United States, and they made him do his senior year in high school, right? Yes, they did. They said, and they the thing that really got him was he had to repeat that, but they thought he was too old to play on the baseball and team. He says, all I want to do is play on the baseball team. And they said, you're too much of a man. <laughs> play on the baseball team. So he actually did his senior year 
with kids who, you know, didn't even know where Japan or Okinawa was, yet he had gone through all that, finished his senior year, didn't play baseball, but went on to college and was an English uh, high school teacher for a long time, right, Joe? Absolutely. Right, Lois? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Correcting my grammar all the way through. Well, that's why you have such beautiful grammar there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So anyway, well, there you go. Uh, You know, warplanes of World War II, strange stories about warplanes of World War II. Maybe we'll do similar segments in the future. So look, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a commercial break now? And we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone or something looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. doing a special show tonight in the studio with us is the lovely Lois Lane. Hi, Mac. Hi, everybody. It's been quite a fun night, hasn't fun. it? It has been a fun night, and it's not even over yet. <laughs> so now uh, the staff tells me that you have a surprise for me. Is that it? Well, yes. I hope you're ready. You're going to be a little bit on the hot seat. Oh. Can you handle it? I hope so. (laughs) So what's been going on is over the past few months, fans have been writing in and asking questions, and we've been collecting them. And we thought, what a great time to just put you on the hot seat. Questions about what? Questions about you. They want to know about Mac. Oh, my goodness. No. (laughs) Yes, I'm surprised. Thank you, staff. Okay. (laughs) And that's what we're doing now for this segment? Yes. We thought this would be the best time to, you know, because inquiring minds want to know more about Mac Maloney. Where's my Jenny Ice? Here it is. (laughs) You down that because you've got a little while here. We've got a whole bunch of questions. Well, we can record it. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to run it, but let's see what happens. (laughs) Well, we'll see. 
Right. So the very first thing that has come up numerous times is people want to know, is Mac Maloney your real name? I know that's a simple yes or no question. Right. Um, Let me just answer it this way, okay? Uh, Everyone on the show does not use their real name. Is that the right way to say that? No one on the show uses their real name. We all have aliases. Oh, well, that's very intriguing. So everybody's got a secret life going on. That's so oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leap, <laughs> make that leap below us. We just have stage names. That's well, all. it's sort of like, you know, an alternate. Okay. So the answer is um, Mac Maloney is actually oh. um, my uh, stage name for the show. Okay. So where did that name come from? Okay. That's question number two? It's a follow-up. Okay. Um, it, it is my pen name. I've been writing uh, books for... Uh, more than 20 years, and uh, the first book that I r- wrote, uh, the editor called me up. Uh, the book was in. It was it was uh, printed, ready to go, but he said to me, well, listen, we need a, a pen name for you. No one had mentioned this in the year I've been working on this thing. No one mentioned to me that they were going to use anything other but my real name. And now he gives me five minutes to come up with a pen name. So as it turns out that um, one half of my family's uh, name is Maloney, so that was kind of natural. Um, but then I walked into, um, I was working at General Electric at the time, and um, I just didn't know what I could use as a first name. I went into a colleague's office, and um, can't make this stuff up, folks. He was in the uh, process of uh, mailing a pair of women's underwear to a girlfriend of his uh, through the GE mail, I might add, um, basically with a no thinking of you. And um, her name was Mac. And uh, I said, what are you doing? He explained it to me. He says, her name is Mac, Mac Maloney. That's how it happened. Here's the other part of that. I believe there's an interesting reason why your editor wanted you to have a pen name. Right. as The the way he explained it to me, and I might have said this on the show before, but they said, well, because the books I started out doing, the Wingman books, uh, on sale everywhere, by the way, uh, number 21 coming out very soon, um, they were a series, so I was actually contracted to write three of them. And as he put it, he says, well, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, <laughs> we'd want to bring someone else in to write the last two books, and we wouldn't want to change the name, and that's why they needed a pen name. So, <laughs> Just in case. Just in case we want to pr- keep the Wingman series going. So um, on the subject of Wingman, um, a lot of your f- audience knows that you're the author of those books and so they were wondering is hawk hunter based on you um you mean the fighter pilot who drives around in a corvette has esp and is the best fighter pilot to ever live is he based on me yes no he isn't (laughs) you know not even close to the right? so while we're on the subject of planes what is your favorite plane do you have one Mm, good question Good question. Well, um, Wingman flies an F-16, so I've been uh, writing about F-16 sort of more than 20 years. Very cool plane, kind of like a hot rod jet fighter, uh, still around. Um, and U.S. Air Force flies them, also a number of countries around the world. Just a very cool little kind of hot rod uh, jet fighter. I like that one a lot. Um, I like the P-51 Mustang from World War II, one of the coolest planes ever built. Uh, the Spitfire, the British Spitfire, that helped win the Battle of Britain, also a very cool plane. The F-86 uh, Sabre jet from the 50s, um, really kind of a 50s kind of hot rod type jet fighter. So I guess I have a bunch of them, yes. So it's interesting that 
you keep mentioning sort of a hot rod, fast plane. That's what you seem to like. So some people want to know, what is your favorite car? <laughs> and now I want to know, do you have a Corvette? I don't have a Corvette. My favorite car is a 2009 Honda. No. <laughs> uh, if I had a choice, if I had a um, to pick a car, I would pick a um, some kind of Corvette, I guess, even though people would um, accuse me of having a midlife crisis. I could just drive around with you, Lois, with the top down <laughs> and put an end to that. But um, Corvettes have intrigued me for a long time. Um, you know, Jaguars, I guess. I don't know. But um, if I had to pick one, I would say... It would be a Corvette. Second place would be some kind of a, um, a vintage Thunderbird, maybe. The early mm. Thunderbirds were really cool looking, I thought, too. Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with that. I would take a, a vintage Thunderbird in a second. And actually, those new models that came out, I don't remember what year that was, yeah. but they sort of reissued a, a variation of the right. old ones, and I loved those. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So what kind of Corvette does Hawk drive um he actually drives a firebird as it turns out you yeah. said corvette no no well, i was just making that up. oh okay <laughs> vamping as they say in the business no it's only mentioned in one of the books i'm gonna say maybe four or five book four or five where he is driving on an uh, um 83 Firebird, hmm. which at the time I had an 83 Firebird sports car. But I was wondering where you got that idea. Go ahead. Okay. Well, you might have to update that. Yes, right. <laughs> um, so what was your very first car, Mac? People would really like to know. Well, it wasn't a Corvette, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a 1963 um, Chevy Bel Air. Uh, it was kind of gold-colored, had four doors, six-cylinder, automatic, uh, it was the ugliest, most, um, you know, kind of family car that you can get, especially four doors when I was growing up. If you had a four-door car, man, you're a loser. You know, you needed a two-door car to be cool. And uh, it, it was years later that I actually got a two-door car. But anyway, 63 Chevy um, Bel Air. Second car was a 62 Chevy Bel Air. I bought the first one for 200 bucks, and I bought the second one for 125 bucks, And I had them both for about a year or so. It's good cars to start off in because, you know, when you hit things here along the way, you don't want to be denting your Corvette, right? Absolutely. You want to preserve that. Um, wow. Okay, so we know a little bit more about Mac and his cars and Mac and his planes. So people are wondering, they know that you have kind of an interest in movies. Um, you've had Gary Olson on the show a few times, and he reviews movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people know that you studied film. Oh, I mention it all the time on okay. the air that all I have right. a degree in filmmaking. Okay, well, there you go. So, so people are wondering about your favorite movie. Do you have a favorite movie of all time, or would you have to narrow it down to your top five? Um, it might not be top five, but I do have a number of them. Okay, my favorite movie of all time uh, is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly uh, by Sergio Leone. The music is done by Ennio Morricone. Three and a half hour western that uh, an, an Italian director, Italian film crew, they filmed it in Spain with American actors, basically put Clint Eastwood on the map. It's just this incredible story with all these like little stories sewn into it. And um, it's just a great movie. Three and a half hours long. Um, 
It's that's my favorite movie. Does it stand the test of time? Could you still watch it now? Yes, for sure. I've probably watched it maybe twenty times over the years. This is the full. You have to watch the full length version. It's odd because it's like an anti war movie. It's you know it was back. It's, I think it was uh, done in sixty nine. It's an anti war movie. It's a love story. It's um it's a lot of things rolled into one because it's an Italian point of view on what an American Western is. It's not exactly what it, what American Westerns are, but it's like an American Western told through a European point of view. It really just a great movie. Wow. Well, Even though Clint Eastwood is in it, you know, and he's, he's a mushhead. But <laughs> back then, he was good, and he doesn't have very many lines, so he doesn't have to doesn't screw up the movie, uh, you know, with bad acting. Um, but just a super-duper movie. The okay. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the long version. I can't believe you're saying anything bad about Clint Eastwood. But so, um, so you would highly recommend that. And westerns are have never been an interest of mine, but you've just piqued my interest a Mm -hmm. little bit that I might actually want to see that someday. My second movie, this won't be a favorite movie. This won't be a surprise to you. Is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which is just a great movie um, and great for so many. So many different reasons, and um, great story, great acting, Gregory Peck, um, you know, really tells the story about what was happening down south in, you know, that era, and, um, but the strange thing, too, it's it's almost a, um, and not a ghost movie, but there are elements in it of people who uh, are kind of invisible uh, until the very end, and yet their their presence hangs over the story in a, in a very strange, but very cool way. And another thing, too, is I think the music was done by Elmer Bernstein. Um, Switchy will probably correct me on that. But there are parts of that movie where you could take the soundtrack and just put it on a Twilight Zone, and it would fit perfectly. It was just that kind of creepy kind of sci-fi music that just goes so well with this uh, movie, which is about, you know, the bad state of race relations back in the uh, 50s down south. Absolutely. Wow, that... Another interesting one. Well, okay. I went to film school, Lois. You did. Wow, we are getting another <laughs> I education. I learned something, I guess. <laughs> um, it's also a great book. But um, are, do you want to tell us about more movies you love? It's a book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we I can read. <laughs> I, um, let's see. I don't know. The Shawshank Redemption is a great movie. Um, the uh, Usual Suspects. I'm usual Suspects is also a really good that. movie. I, I'll tell you, a, a really funny movie is Mad, 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 Mad World. I mean, it's a, it's 60s, but it's just a really kind of funny movie because there's a lot of funny comedians in it. I mean, I could go on and on, but, you know, if I had to watch five movies on an island, I think that would be those five. Well, you, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned my top one. Go ahead. Because you love it too, the well, Princess Bride. Oh, the Princess Bride, yes. Because that's of a perfect movie from beginning to end. We all love that movie, don't we, guys? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and I'm going to plug another one. Um, it's old, but it was hilarious. The Adventures of Babysitting. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Now is we're this getting... ten questions for Lois or? For <laughs> sorry, <them>? sorry. <laughs> all right. So. Um, <clears throat> People are wondering a little bit about the show and the process of putting that together. Oh. How long does it take you? Wow, good question. Um, well, it takes us, um, we have to re- do two hours every week. Uh, we record on Tuesday nights. 
Uh, we do it from um, WXEX in Exeter, New Hampshire, uh, one of the um, stations owned uh, by Pistol Pete. His uh, network stretches throughout New England. It's a great place to be. You've been there, Lois. Isn't it a nice, nice place? It's really nice. Very subdued and set back and mm-hmm. oddly enough set in a kind of a neighborhood, mm-hmm. but it it just it's a great location. It is. It is a great location and they they you know you've heard us say this many times. They just couldn't treat us better there. We're friends with the people who run it. We have a lot of fun there. So anyway, so we record there uh, uh, two hours Tuesday nights. Now, to record two hours usually probably takes about three hours just to get everything set up, to get the guests on the air, to talk to them a little bit before we start the show. And then um, and then what happens the next day is I will listen to the show uh, Wednesday morning, and I will uh, log it, basically saying where the edits should be. That takes a while, so I get to listen to the show again, and then I send that to the editor, whose name uh, is Evan Wallace, who just happens to be the son of Martin Wallace, who does a UFO podcast. We're good friends with him. Uh, we're all kind of in the same part of the world. Um, and then uh, it takes him a few days to edit it, and that's um, he will send it to me uh, for broadcast the following week. So, you know, total amount of hours, I'm going to say, from beginning to end, maybe maybe 10 to 12 hours a week, though it might seem longer than that, right, Lois? You've been involved. Yes, it does. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, and what is the most surprising thing about doing this show for you? <laughs> How many times I can pick up the check and Juan Juan just kind of disappears? <laughs> uh, that's one of them. Um, the thing is, is um, that's a good question. Um I'm surprised how popular it is. Um, we uh, just, I think, passed 83,000 downloads, um, you know, and we only started that about two years ago. So, yeah, that's a pretty big number. I'm just surprised that um, so many people are just regular listeners. We're also on seven radio stations um, around the world. But I guess the most surprising thing is that uh, fans actually write to us and um, – ask us questions like these. I'm, I'm surprised by the fan reaction and how, um, in, in many ways, the fans kind of share something in common while they listen to the show, but they're from literally all over the world. I mean, we have a lot of fans in Canada, certainly, and in the United States and in, um, and in England, because we hear from people from those countries all the time. But we get letters from people in Germany. We got we get letters from people in Luxembourg, Liechtenstein. We got a letter the other day, email, I mean, from a, uh, from a guy in Cairo, um, people down in New Zealand and Australia. Um, so I guess I'm most surprised that um, we're so popular literally around the world and that people take the time and, and write to us and tell us what they think about the show. Yeah. Well, they're very interested in all the... All the personalities on the show, I imagine. You've kept it very lively. Well, that's what they mentioned the most. I mean, uh, maybe I'm telling too many tales out of school here, but when we get um, email, very rarely does it say, you know, we like that report on Bigfoot and flying saucers, or we like that report on, you know, uh, UFOs during the Korean War. What they do is that they, they just say that they like to hear us get together every week, and it sounds like they're at a party with us, and uh, I love that idea. Yes, party it is. And on that note, how did you and Juan Juan meet? Everyone wants to know. Well, we were at a party. No. no, no. <laughs> um, what happened was my um, 
my computer. I was in the middle of a deadline. This is going back some time. And uh, I was in the middle of a deadline, and my computer just completely, like, seized up with all, with, you know, probably two-thirds of a book in it, and, uh, you know, it's due in two weeks or whatever. And um, I asked my neighbor at the time. Uh, he had told me that uh, some guy had just straightened out his computer pro uh, problems. And I said, listen, I need someone to come and look at this, like, right away. So he gave me this number, and um, probably two hours later, this guy named Juan shows up at the door. And he came upstairs and um, looked at my computer, fixed it in probably 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes tops. But then we spent the next hour and 50 minutes talking about Keith Richards and the Rolling Stone. And because we both had music in common, he knows a lot about music. You know, I picked up a lot about music along the way, but we just kind of had that uh, thing in common okay so he really did stay for two hours just talking about music i'm thinking boy doesn't he have anywhere else to go but <laughs> you know apparently not and um and so then uh, he fixed it it was great then i get the bill and he charged me for two hours so he actually <laughs> charged me for talking to him about keith richards okay? that's so not true it is absolutely true oh my goodness juan yeah you know, juan juan, juan. <laughs> well and so after being charged for two hours of chatting I'm surprised you kept the relationship up. Well, you know, he's just one of these guys. And, and, you know, I know a lot of people like him on the air because of how he sounds. Very kind of smooth and cool. But he is an interesting guy. I've never met anyone like Juan, you know, um, Juan Juan. He's a very, um, I don't know, how would you describe him? You've met him. Very smooth, but very kind of. Um, well, he just has so many interesting stories, too. Mm -hmm. Like he's done a lot of things in yes. his life yeah, for sure. so he's just he surprises you very often with <laughs> something else yeah. you say oh well, i was there or i, I did this, this. Yeah, yeah and you're like right. really how you know how many lives have you had right. is the right. question we often think and, and he's um someone used the word um he's without guile and i think i had to uh kind of look it up and it just means that you know he uh he's not he, he's not like a threat to anybody he's not like I walk into a bar room and I'm, I'm always looking. Okay, who's who, who's going to start the fight with me this time? But no one ever gives him. He says anything to anybody, and no one ever takes it the wrong way. Very genuine. Yeah, very, very genuine. genuine. Yeah, yeah. That is Juan. 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 Sorry, JJ. Go ahead. <laughs> well, on that note, you mentioned music, so I know he is a big Rolling Stones fan. And do you have a favorite Stone? Um, yeah, I mean, Keith Richards is, you know, I mean, uh, he's, I don't want to say he's a hero of mine, but I, um, I admire him, uh, because, um, he, uh, you know, grew up playing the guitar and, um, you know, um, um, following in the footsteps of people like Mighty Waters and B.B. King and, um, all these old blues players that he just admired over the years. And what has happened is that now he has turned into one of these guys. He has become what his heroes were, you know, and not many people are able to do that, you know, and, uh, and he's still at it. And I know that a lot of people say, you know, I mean, how's this guy still alive? It turns out that he has, uh, cause I, I read his uh, autobiography. He has, um, uh, longe longevity in his uh, DNA. He had, at one point, he had four siblings in their 90s. He was like uh, the youngest of the family. Wow. So uh, he's going to be around for a long time. And, and he's, he's, he has no pretenses about who he is at all. You know, he's, he's a guy. He just happens to be in like the biggest band around uh, for the past 50 years um, uh, next to the Beatles. 
and he's never changed. He, he just seems to be a guy that if he was just getting 100 bucks to play at your local bar, he'd be just as happy. So uh, maybe, um, maybe I'm just being too Pollyanna on this, but I admire him in a way. And have you always felt like that, or has Juan Juan convinced you of that? Juan Juan has brainwashed me of that. Um, the thing is, is that I was never a real big Stones fan, uh, but when they were um, touring there a couple of years ago, he talked me into going with him to go see them. They're playing at Gillette Stadium, where the Patriots play, about an hour from where we are. And I, I hemmed in hard, and uh, because the ticket prices were like way, way up there, but he said to me, "Well, if you don't see them now." When are you going to see them, you know? And I, and that made sense. And I really wanted to go for two reasons. I never saw the Beatles, and I'm a big Beatles fan. And I thought, well, this is the second best thing because they were the second biggest band, you know? And they're the biggest band now around because the Beatles are no longer with us. But um, so I thought that too, and I thought, I want to know if it's just all hype or not, you know? You can see them playing in videos, you know, live, but you really can't tell. You have to go see a band live yourself to see if they live up to the hype. And, you know, for years, the Rolling Stones were saying, you know, the world's greatest rock band and everything. And I just wanted to know. So, you know, we shelled out some dough. We went and we were 40 uh, rows back from the stage. So we were really right up there. And um, 65,000 people in the stadium sold out. And they came out and um, they started playing. I don't even remember what song it was. But really, 20 seconds in, I just turned on and I said, they're great. They're great. You could just tell. They were great. And they are great. For two and a half hours, it was just like this nonstop, nonstop hits. Every song's a hit. Every song, they don't play it, you know, note for note, but they improve on all of them. And just the way they put on the show and the way they sound, and they're all in their 70s. They're running up and down <laughs> the stage. I'm, I'm out of breath watching these guys. It was just an amazing, amazing experience uh, in my life. And I'm just glad that he talked me into going. Yeah. High energy, sounds like. Yep. Yeah. So um, you you have talked about the Beatles before on your show, and people are wondering, do you have a favorite Beatle? Uh, no, I don't. No, I really don't. I mean, I think George Harrison was an interesting guy. He was probably the most normal of them all. Ringo, uh, also kind of low-key, but just kind of like a normal guy. Um, you know, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, I mean, they were just like, um, you know, they're almost like aliens from <laughs> another planet because what they did uh, has never been replicated. Everyone's always trying to beat the Beatles, but you never do. Um, they wrote 178 songs. Uh, you know, most of them were hits, um, sold billions of uh, records, um, enjoyed by so many people. And, and, and the other thing that I know I've mentioned before is that um, when you read, like, biographies of these rock stars, Almost to a person, they say, well, the reason I'm playing rock and roll is because they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, February 9th, 1964. I saw them playing, saw it the way they looked, saw the girls screaming at them, and they said, this is what I want to do, you know, and, and I'm no different, you know. But that happened to millions and millions of people uh, that night all, and what, you know, seeing the Beatles, you know, during the seven years they were together. And I just think of... How many people, because of the Beatles, became musicians, learned how to play guitar, wrote songs, just brought music, you know, knowing music into their lives? That has to be also in the millions and millions. How many people they inspired just to write music, write songs, write poetry? Um, you know, it, it's incalculable. Um, and uh, so that's why I like all four of them. As a unit, they did this together. Yeah, it, they 
really are an amazing group of people who accomplish something nobody else has ever done and, as you said, have touched so many people and made an impact on the world that, you know, can't be replicated. But um, so I don't have a nice segue for this next well, question. Well, except <laughs> um, So switching from music. Oh, and how funny that switching came up in my... Um, phrasing because people are wondering, you're always asking Switch about his breakfast. And people are wondering, do you have a favorite breakfast? That is one of the questions about breakfast. I think we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. I've been eating the same breakfast for at least... But that's not your favorite. No, but for at least five years, would you say I've been eating the same breakfast every day? Is it five around? It's closing in on five. <laughs> and basically it is, is uh, one piece of toast, a very thin spread of peanut butter drizzled with honey. And that's what I've eaten for yeah, quite a few years. Quite a few years. <laughs> Do I have a favorite breakfast? But is that your favorite? I mean, if you got to choose. I mean, you listen to Switch talk about his right. smorgasbord of... <laughs> Yes. breakfast. And I know you're drooling when he does. So I'm drooling now. <laughs> what is it that you would like? Well, pancakes. You... you know, I'm a big pancake guy. Okay. Pancakes. Um, if I had, you know what I would, I guess what I would like. I, I mean, I'm some... Let the people want to know, spread it, you paint a picture of your meal. Okay. Your breakfast. Okay. Um, I'm the type of person who would rather eat in a diner than a fancy Paris restaurant. Would you say that's true? They'll always hear Oh, without a doubt. Okay. Um, I would get um, two pancakes, hash browns. I suppose I would get some kind of, you know, bacon or pork product, maybe sausages. Okay. Um, you know, what else did they throw on those things? Uh, you know, a lot of ketchup, of course. Ketchup? Yeah. Oh, a couple of scrambled eggs. See, I'm, I'm describing <laughs> what, that, what Switch eats every Tuesday. <laughs> And no wonder we make a big deal out of it. We're yeah, living through him vicariously. I, I think that's what it is. <laughs> so um, back to the main topic of the show, which is UFOs. People are wondering, have you ever seen a UFO? No, I haven't. Now, you and I have had a couple of experiences, one down in Florida. If you remember, we pulled over to the side of the road and we saw the lights going overhead. Oh, my goodness, yes. We just watched for such a long time. Right. As they slowly, slowly in formation, just in yeah. a total formation, and other people just... stopped and they were looking at the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I know one of those people said they they thought they were Chinese uh, lanterns, lanterns. Yep. Um, but then we actually called the airport the next day, and um, other people had seen it, but they said they definitely weren't Chinese lanterns. But it wasn't like it was; they were just lights in the sky. You know? Well. It, I don't think it was Chinese lanterns because so. we have since seen them because right. that is something people like to do around here in, let's say, you know, the warmer weather. People might um, set those off and they they didn't do what these lights did. Yeah, I mean, these lights stayed in formation. There's about a dozen to 15 of them and they mm -hmm. literally stayed in formation, which you hear a lot of UFO reports are like that. Um, but, um, you know, there were, there were basically lights in the sky. And the other time I can remember, hopefully you can remember too, we were down the beach. I've told this story on the show before, and we were um, watching the big waves down um, uh, on the shore that day. And we were standing on that boardwalk, and we saw these lights coming across the marsh, the Ipswich marshes. And I remember saying to you, uh, "This is it. We're going to see a UFO because it was like blinking amber, green, and white lights, very low, acting very odd." 
And uh, then they flew over us, and they were uh, medevac helicopters going to the hospital. <laughs> yes, they did. And, and it was um, interesting because I've said before, you know, if they were 100 feet away from us, we would have said, hey, we saw two UFOs. I mean, so it's easy to see how people mistake odd things flying as being UFOs. Mm-hmm. And people are wondering, what would you do if you actually got you had a, an encounter of some kind? Um, I don't know what I'd do. I don't think it's going to happen to me because um, I think it only happens to certain people, and uh, I'm not one of them. Um, I would like to see them. I would, li- I would like to see one. I would like to go through the experience that a lot of people say they go through when they see it, but I just don't think it's in the cards for me. I don't know why, but I just don't think I'll ever see one. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, though, because you're so tuned into it, too. It's sort of like that. A watched pot never boils. Right, yeah. If you're looking for them, you never see them. Exactly. That's the thing. That does make sense. So um, we do have one more question. And this, I I saved this for last because I thought it was the most, um, it just, very interesting. What, um, what is something about you that would surprise your audience? (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) Something about me that would surprise... The audience. They wouldn't expect this about you to find this out, that they don't already know, too. Hmm. Okay. Does this include wearing your underwear? Or? Oh, my gosh. Wait, please. Hang on. Hang on. Wait. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I like cars. Uh, you know, I like race cars. People. I, I, I tell you, I was thinking of something earlier today, and I'll tell you something that fascinates me. I'm not interested in it, but the fact that it exists fascinates me. <clears throat> it's the whole world of fashion. <laughs> as odd as that might seem. Okay. Where you where you see it on TV and there's in dozens of magazines and there's this whole world of fashion. I think you mean high fashion high is fashion. the thing that puzzles you because you right. do ask an awful lot when you see those shots of those models who look very angry, yes. um, strutting down a runway, wearing something that looks like it's a you know a ping pong table on their back. Ping pong table, very famous. <laughs> yeah. You know that's a shiny, and you think, how does that convert into something someone would wear? Very popular in the spring collection of nineteen nineteen. No, I mean two thousand nineteen. <laughs> I know that's what I mean. I mean you see. People come out, like I say, they, these models, they're always angry. They look like they haven't eaten for years. They look like they've been in jail. They looked unwashed. They have blackened <laughs> eyes. And they're wearing something that looks like a sackcloth. And and it goes for like $20,000, you know. And I, and I always think to myself, well, where are people wearing these things, okay? Is there some party that we will be invited to someday? And there'll be someone in a ping pong dress? And there'll be someone <laughs> in like a, you know, like a prison dress? And and what kind of parties are these people going to? And 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 then where does that translate? Someone once said to me, "Well, the reason they do that is then, you know, other manufacturers knock off, you know, what they see in these these collections that they do every spring and fall, um, and then it it kind of trickles down until you know someone is buying it at Walmart or something. But and I can see that happening in some cases, but I've yet to see a ping pong dress sold, you know, at Walmart. And and I just don't get that. And I knew someone that one of my editors, his uh, sister worked for Cosmopolitan and, um, and, and they're involved in a lot of kind of photo shoots and stuff like that. And, and he told me that she said that they handle these 
dresses and you know that looked like you know sackcloths and ping pong tables they handle them like they're the golden fleece like they're made of gold they have like special cars to deliver them and stuff they're that valuable and but you know to who and why and why does everyone make such a big deal out of this woman who goes around uh, with the sunglasses there you know in uh winter or something like that and she's like this this person that people look on as a god and, you know, if you go to a party and she's there and you're not wearing, like, the right ribbon in your hair or the right nylon stockings or something, you're ostracized forever. What, it's a crazy business. I just don't understand why it's given that much gravitas. You know? Well, considering you're somebody who only wears black shirts and black pants, I can understand your questions. Um, I also don't get it myself, but I think it's in the line of art, you know, sort of like modern art, and people don't always understand that either. But, well, Mac, thank you so much for all your time. That wasn't too bad. No, we really didn't. We'll have to, uh, maybe audience members will send in even more, maybe more. Okay. You know, probing questions, so probing we can, <laughs> so we can really get okay. down and dirty. With I'll have Mac. be a Mac, a down and dirty. Oh, <laughs> Lord! It definitely would be a Mac after dark. Then there you go. So we have the next Mac after dark already planned. Also, so audience members, please keep sending in the oh, questions. Really? Do you really want to say that? I do, because <laughs> okay. this was loads of fun. Okay. Uh, I don't know so. if everybody's going to think so when <laughs> so they're listening to probably this. Probably listening to the basketball game at this point. <laughs> but anyway, thank you, Lois, for coming up and surprising me with those. I appreciate it. Well. And uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a commercial break now? Uh, if we have any sponsors left, and we'll be right back. You're listening to my. We won't moments. have any fashion. No fashion. Yeah, right. I don't like Cosmo. I think they've all dropped yeah. off now. Um, you're listening to Macloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. Mac Maloney's Bill Tracks House Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. Wow, this is Mac Maloney. What a show we have for you tonight. But, you know, this is a special uh, show because on the line with us is like one of my favorite authors. She's written one of my favorite books, and I'm holding the book in my hand, and I'm telling you, it's so dog-eared, and it has so many, like, index cards sticking out of it. You can barely see it. 
but uh, it's Sharon Weinberger, and the name of the book is The Imagineers of War. It's the unstole, untold story of DAPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. I'd like to refer to them as like the Pentagon's mad scientist, but uh, she's the expert. Sharon, thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, a lot longer than I thought. Mm-hmm. I think in my proposal, I, I thought it would be 18 months. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it was four and a half years. Oh, from is that start all? To- oh, wow, wow, well, wow. I had been reporting on DARPA for a number of years. So a, part, a number of the interviews I had done about eight or nine years earlier when I was writing about their 50th anniversary. So, mm-hmm. you know, four and a half years in earnest and then probably a decade of, you know, on and off reporting on DARPA. Okay. So my first question would be, is the acronym, you know, is it intentionally hard to remember, not to remember what it what it stands for? Because, you know, I still have to stop and think. Defense advanced research projects agency it's not intuitive Hmm. um you know i think it wasn't you know part of it was that this was not an agency that was originally designed to be around for a long time i don't think they thought like what is the sexiest name for it if they had they probably come up with something different yes and in fact the original proposal they were going to call it the special projects office Mm. and then they were concerned people would confuse it with special operations so no yeah i think the name which was originally arpa without the d was Mm. you know it was really it was just like you know it's a it was a quick measure at the time sure right and so what we should explain is and and actually I, i should have you explain but basically what i look at them as is that they were this agency that was started in 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 the 50s in 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 and basically, they said to them, and I think this is such a wild idea, you know, don't think up crazy ideas, but if you have a crazy idea, tell us about it. Yeah, so as you said, it was started in 1958 as response um, to the launch of Sputnik, which had happened a few months prior in 1957. And the idea was the U.S. had been technologically surprised by the Soviet Union. And the um, I, President Eisenhower at the time wanted the Pentagon to basically get its act together and to consolidate the space base program programs that the different services um, Army, Navy and Air Force had. Mm-hmm. And um, so they created this agency that was basically mm-hmm. the, the nation's first space agency before before NASA existed. And, you know, the, the idea was that we're going to get into space quickly. We're going to pursue ideas um, that other people aren't pursuing. You know, maybe it's crazy, but we're, we're going to go for it. Mm-hmm. It, and I think that's just that's a, a progressive thinking that I, I I couldn't believe that a, a government like ours would even have back then. Well, it's true, but part of it was you know there were a lot of crazy ideas around 1957, 1958. Mm, people were proposing you know you know militarized moon bases, sure. you know crazy missile schemes. So in a way, you could say that like. DARPA or ARPA, as it was called, it was sort of going to be the arbiter of crazy ideas. It wasn't that they were necessarily going to be crazy, but there were all these crazy ideas coming into the Pentagon and they would help decide which ones were maybe crazy enough to work. Mm -hmm. Right. And and, and they came up with a bunch of them. And I'll tell you, one of the things I just want to do, I I just made a list of my favorites in your book. And the book is The Imagineers of War by Sharon Weinberg. She's been kind enough to join us tonight. And um, just to kind of get people to get a feel for what DAPA does and in, in what they've done in the past, I just want to run down like some of the things that stuck out in the book, like for, uh, to me. So at one point in the fifties, basically what the, you know, what the threat was was that Russian ICBMs would be fired at the United States, I guess over the over the North Pole, and um, they were trying to figure out well, 
How are we going to prevent this? So didn't somebody propose like a large net right over the entire country? Oh, yeah. There were all sorts of fantastic ideas. There was going to be a net. Um, there were going to be, you know, little mini satellites that would take out, uh, you know, ICBMs. I think my favorite that I talk about in the book was by this uh, Greek scientist, Nick Christopoulos, who emigrated to the States. And he had an idea for a particle beam, you know, basically something that would blast um, these missiles out of the sky. The only problem was, you know, the, the, the way he proposed to power it, they said there's, it would take the entire U.S. electrical grid to power this particle beam. Oh, wow. So at one point he said, you know, well, suppose we drain the Great Lakes yes. to generate the power to create this particle beam. <laughs> Why not? Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is this guy who proposed putting a highway across the entire United yes. States so you could keep bombers constantly in motion. He always had these very crazy ideas. He, he was on my list of, of the DAPA personalities, and that was my second uh, uh, on the list of their, the, the different things that they did. They He proposed basically what was going to be a 2,500-mile runway, right, where the exactly. bombers could land on and the, and the the Russian ICBMs. There's no way that they could you know get them all if they were on a— you know, a, a runway that stretched across the country. I mean, that's... They would just keep going, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what was interesting about that scientist, the reason why DARPA and the people around him tolerated these ideas was that he was scientifically brilliant. You know, mm -hmm. he wasn't just some guy up the street. He understood the physics of it, and he was sort of unbridled creativity. Now, sometimes even some of the central people in DARPA thought he went too far, but they were sort of willing to entertain at least the ideas mm -hmm. that he proposed and think them through. Right. At least they, yeah, at least they kind of got on their agenda or whatever. Um, another favorite of mine is, now DARPA was really involved in the Vietnam War, and I think, you know, if people have ever heard of them, you know, and their Vietnam involvement was very strange because they were trying to win I mean, the whole thing about Dabra is it's, it's like, what's the military, what happens when the military and science kind of collide or whatever? And, you know, they were trying, it seemed to me like in Vietnam, they were trying to, you know, win the war with numbers or psychology or something, you know. But but they also, didn't someone propose because the troops were carrying so much stuff, didn't they propose a mechanical elephant or something along those lines? They did indeed. I think it was like a cyber-anthropomorphic elephant. It was going to be, so it's it's often now called a robotic elephant, but it was actually weirder than that. There was going to be a human inside operating it. It was completely bizarre. Wow. It, it, I think one of the DARPA directors even called it a, quote, damned fool project. Oh, really? Um, it, it, well, it's a you had, you know, Congress would look at these proposals, so you had to do things that were crazy, but at least sounded plausible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, um, they let's let's get into something that, um, you know, that they're probably not known for. But you mentioned it earlier. I mean, uh, wasn't basically wasn't didn't they want to establish a network between computers of like the early warning system or something like that, and and that turned into the op, and that and that turned into the internet. Um, so basically, in the early 1960s, DARPA was given this assignment by the Pentagon for command and control. And I think what the Pentagon had in mind was nuclear command and control. But the, the guy they hired uh, named J.C.R. Licklider was a psychologist who had actually come out of the world um, of SAGE, which was a computer system that was going to help 
uh, connect the air defense radars around the United States. These were the radar that can, that would detect incoming Soviet bombers. Yes. And the same computer system was really the first example of people sitting in front of consoles and using computers to work. You know, we think of that natural now, but in the 1950s, using a computer was walking into a big room and putting, you know, a punch card sure. into a computer. It, it comes out and then you go back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he realized, he was one of the first people to realize that the way you would work with computers and networks of computers would really transform things. So his idea at DARPA was to create a computer network, not necessarily for nuclear command and control, mm-hmm. but to connect computers together and to transform how people work with computers. Right, sure. But at the time, it just seemed like a, such an alien idea, you know, that computers would talk to each other. It's almost not like having electric typewriters talk to each other. It just didn't compute, you know, but... Boom, here we are. Look what it's done. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing. He was talking about things that people now seem obvious. You know, he had one sort of meeting where he brought in DARPA people and was trying to give examples. And apparently he said, you know, someday you'll be in your kitchen. You'll be able to get recipes off this computer network. <laughs> and people have no idea, like, well, why would you want it? Like, sure. Who cares? Yeah, right. He yes. really Ah, the future that we now take for granted. Right, sure. Um, why don't we, uh, you know, we're talking to Sharon Weinberg, who is the author of The Imagineers of War. It's the untold story of DAPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. And um, they are, I mean, am I wrong if I describe them as the Pentagon's mad scientists? Yeah, I mean, I... Absolutely not wrong. And in fact, I think it's right. The reason why I hesitate to use that term personally is I think one of the things that people forget about DARPA is they think of it as sort of now the science fiction agency. They do crazy things. Mm -hmm. But what I always try to emphasize people is that actually part of their role is not to be mad, but to take, to be sort of creative and think Mm -hmm. about the future. Right. But evaluate it scientifically and say like, yeah, because the thing is, if you just invest in every mad science idea, you're, you're, you're playing the lottery. You're not going to win. Right. You have to have some sort of scientific sense, but I think that that is, I mean, it is a fair way to describe it in some senses. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I'm I'm skipping around here now, but let me ask you this then. What, uh, you know, you, you talk about lots of things that they, that they have done over the years. Um, I mean, they, they basically invented Siri um, they were involved with remote viewing. They they invented that blow-up plane, the QT2, where you would just blow up this plane, put a, a propeller on it, and off you would go. It would fit in a suitcase. Um, but they did things like, um, didn't they try to, didn't they start uh, uh, crowdsourcing when they, didn't they put futures on the stock market about, you know, terrorist acts in the future or something? Yeah, so uh, you're exactly right. So after 9-11, they got involved in a lot of projects, some of which got criticized, even though some of them seem very logical now. And so they um, they invested, they didn't do it, they invested in a project, gave funding for a project that was looking about whether you could sort of use the wisdom of crowds to crowdsource predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, using money, using financial incentives, sort of, I think it was called MAPS or MAP, it was sort of a stock market for political events. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got, you know, as these things often happen, when it was written about, you know, it was talking about, you know, people betting on an Arafat assassination mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, 
hijacking. And it didn't play well in the press. And I don't think DARPA did a very good job of describing it. And so they ended up canceling the project, even though now, you know, sort of crowdsourcing predictions and analysis is very common. I think that's been a challenge for DARPA. Sometimes they don't think about how these things will look. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was of it. But they shelve they they've seemed to have shelved things that you know have just, have come back to you know basically uh, you know affect our lives like the Siri like the internet or whatever. And so my other question to you it was um, on my pink card here is uh, what percentage of the things you talk about so many things in your book and I know that that you researched you know the heck out of it. How many things do you think they've done are classified? Quite a bit. I think at one point when I was looking at their budget, about a third of their budget was classified. This is probably as of, you know, seven or eight years ago. My guess is it's probably similar now, but I haven't looked. Um, Luckily, in in doing the book, a lot of work had been declassified. So a lot of things after 30 years go under declassification review. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm able to write in such a detailed way about Vietnam. Yes. I, I do think that, yeah, there's a lot of work, particularly from the past two decades, um, that we don't know about. Now, here's what I'll say about classified projects. Classified projects that work, we tend to find out about because when they are used like a stealth aircraft, it's very hard to keep them secret. Sure. It's actually the failures that are sometimes yes. hard to um, that, that, that sort of stay in the closet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But So what is their uh, budget these days? Is it like $3 billion or something? Yeah, it's again. I haven't. I, I will say I actually haven't kept track of DARPA that much over the past twelve months. Wow. But it yet yeah, hovered around three billion, give or take, the past number of years. In general, as the Defense Department budget goes up, DARPA's budget goes up. So, so wow, you just surprised me. So, you know, DARPA is something in your rearview mirror. Well, it's not in my rearview mirror. I, I keep track of sort of the interesting work they do. But as you could sort of see from the book, I, I'm about details and about mm-hmm. granular level looks. Yes. And so I, you know, I, 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 you know, talk to DARPA people now and then. I try to keep track of the big picture. But, you know, in terms of, you know, when people ask me, where is this project, that project, unless I really looked at it in detail, people say, is this successful? Is that not successful? I think it's unfair for me unless I'm really interviewing the people involved in that project say so you know i I keep track of darpa but um not on the same level that i did while i was doing the book first of all i have to compliment you on the book and um um, i might have said this before but you know there's it's it's a um i don't think it's it would be a dry subject but i think it would be it must have been just a massive project to you know boil it down to something that is a page turner you know it's about this government agency it is a strange government agency but yeah, you you were able to do it. That's from, I guess, one writer to another. I'm just kind of um, fascinated how you how you did it. Oh, that's very kind. I, and I think you that was the hardest part of this book. How do you tell the history of an agency? And unlike, you know, the CIA or NASA, I think what makes um, DARPA unique on that and makes it challenging is a couple things. A, you don't have lifetime employees. There are, you know, there are. People have been there a little longer, but for the most part, people are there three to five years. So you can't tell the story of an agency through, you know, one person who was there for two decades. Right. And another problem, and I think something that I, I wish they would correct, is, you know, most large agencies actually have in-house historians. The CIA does, um, you know, NASA does. 
And DARPA has really suffered, I think, institutionally, at least their memory, by not having that. They commissioned one excellent history that I rely on a lot in my book back, um, it was published in the 1970s, that was written by a former DARPA employee. Um, and then nothing since then. Um, you know, so what I had to do for my book was to figure out how do you tell the story of this agency that's been this collection of people mm-hmm. and so many projects. And so I don't, you know, it's impossible to cover everything. I tried to choose the things that I thought were most representative of what made this agency so unique and so important to the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking to Sharon Weinberger, the uh, author of The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DAPA. The Pentagon Agency that changed the world. Oh, we talked about earlier, if you want to just refer to them as the uh, Pentagon's mad scientists because they come up with these these ideas. And, and I'm sure that, um, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, that, that, you know, let's say the majority of them are like either crazy or, you know, just uh, things that you can't do. But they have come up with things like, um, you know, uh, stealth fighters, uh, precision weapons, uh, the Internet, um uh, Siri, uh, I mean, they come up with these things that, um, yeah, they, they work their way into our lives in a way, you know, whether you're in the military or whether you're, you're a civilian. It's it, And I don't think, I think the vast, vast majority of people in this country have no uh, idea that DAPR exists, right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You know, it's, it's certainly known in the D.C. area. It's known around people who follow tech. Mm-hmm. But it's never become a real household name the way, you know, NASA has. But shouldn't it and be? I mean, shouldn't it be, I, though? I, Couldn't they be really? Aren't they the cool agency? I mean, let's face it. They're, they're, they, they were put together because to cut through the red tape, they have this, you know, this, this pass, this hall pass through the red tape. They can get stuff done very, very quickly. They had guys in. I mean, there's one guy who's a, a, you know, a, a picture in your book. His name is George Lawrence. He's, he's a hippie. He's a hippie, and, he, and and this is a direct report to the Secretary of Defense, right? Yeah, I know. He was a very colorful guy and did some amazing work. Yeah, I think I think it's almost a branding issue. You know, why does everyone know who Steve Jobs is? Mm. We well, would do his amazing things with 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 yes. Apple, but JCR Licklider, basically the godfather of mm-hmm. the internet is a completely unknown name outside of computer historians. And, and a fascinating um, guy. He's a fascinating he, guy, you know? I mean, uh, he's the father of the internet. No one knows who he is. Yeah, and so I think it has to do with, with branding. I mean, Apple is a worldwide brand. You, know, If the internet today were called DARPAnet, mm-hmm. people would have heard of DARPA. You know, instead, but ARPANET, it was it was called, became the internet, and we know mm-hmm. the internet. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is branding. You know, DARPA brought us, you know, driverless cars, but mm-hmm. we'll eventually think of driverless cars as synonymous not with DARPA, but with Uber or Google or whoever brings them to the streets. Sure. Right. Um, wide numbers. Uh, you know, Siri. Who, who knew it? Siri isn't called DARPA Siri. It's right. Siri. It, it's a branding issue, but maybe that's okay. Uh, maybe they need a PR agency. Maybe they need public relations. You know, they, they have that. I think they go back and forth between both, you know, feeling that they haven't gotten the, the, the publicity that they deserve versus, you know, maybe they shouldn't have it. It's a government agency that continues to do good work. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's suffered in recent years in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's okay that it's not a household name. Yeah, okay. Maybe as long as it's doing good work, that's okay. Well, there's some advantages to uh, flying below the radar, no doubt about it. But um, yeah. so uh, let me ask this, though. Um, 
do I, I feel almost guilty that I'm glad that they exist. Do you know what I mean? How so? That they're that because it's a military agency. Well, yeah, because and um, um, you know, they do come up with some. I mean, that that whole kind of human science thing, and um, you know, going into. You know, they're looking into how to regain memories in people, which is really good, which is at the end of the book, and you and you really kind of emphasize that, hey, now they're doing some kind of work that might actually benefit, you know, uh, veterans and stuff coming home with brain injuries and stuff like that. But, you know, regaining people's memories, you know, as a, as a kind of science fiction writer, that's not too far away from, um, you know, creating people's memories. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, one of the things I really tried to do with the book is that, you know, it, it is an incredibly successful agency, but it's also had some great darkness to its history. Mm-hmm. It, it introduced Agent Orange to Vietnam, something that it would happily like to not have as part of his of its history. Mm-hmm. Um, neuroscience, uh, military neuroscience, as you point out, is a very fraught area. Um, and what must you know, what should not be forgotten, it is, it's duty, it's a military agency. Its main role is to help a, you know, the United States wage wars and hopefully keep the peace, but that's an inherent part of it. It is not the Peace Corps. It is Mm -hmm. not USAID. Um, It is a military agency. And, you know, that is why, you know, when other countries have talked about doing DARPA, particularly the Europeans, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, not DARPA, but we don't want it to be a military agency. And I I understand that. But what people have to understand is the military is intertwined with its history. And for better or for worse, one of the reasons it's been so successful is because it has a customer, the biggest customer perhaps in the world called the Pentagon to help, you know, to transition these projects. So I don't think it would have ever been as successful if it were a a commercial or a... Right. I mean, and really, the Pentagon is the largest customer you can have in the the world, in the history of the world. I mean, they're they're up at almost a trillion dollars. I mean, wow, that's interesting. That was going to be, that led into my... My uh, next question was, are there any other countries who have something like DAPA? Because once again, what it basically is, is it's this Pentagon agency. It's a military agency, but they're able to kind of cut through the red tape. They're able to take some like kind of crazy ideas sometimes, but sometimes really incredible ideas and kind of uh, shoot them through and not have to go through um, all the um, stumbling blocks. Like you, you point out NASA as a perfect example. Uh, NASA has to go through all this bureaucratic nonsense Dapper is, uh, you know, they're like, boom, boom, they're there. Yeah, I mean, that's been a critical component of DARPA's legacy, that they have much less bureaucracy than other parts of government. They don't have lifelong employees. Um, they're able to award contracts quickly. And they've, I mean, one of the things that's striking is, you know, the DARPA of today is not the DARPA of 1958. I remember going through the files and the employee directory of, of ARPA then in 1958 fit mm-hmm. on an index card. Today, it's a small phone book. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little more bureaucratic than it used to be, but not compared to other parts of government it can still move very quickly mm-hmm. and, and, and another fascinating thing about it is that these people would they would sit in their offices when they were very very small and 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 the guy in the office next to you wouldn't know what you were doing you wouldn't know what he was doing they were just so isolated or whatever yeah i mean i think that it's it's you know sometimes they wish they did collaborate more but you know each program manager is in charge of their projects mm-hmm. and so they're really interacting with 
people that they're funding much more than they are with their other colleagues at DARPA. I think one of the phrases from a director was, you know, it's, uh, you know, 160 people linked by a common travel agency. Mm -hmm. so, so you answered, <laughs> that's funny, that's actually good. Uh, but um, you you mentioned that um, you know other countries they don't they would like to have a DAPA but they don't want it connected with the military but you know in a way that's the smart way to do it because you'll always get funding. Yeah, I mean, so back to your previous question, there really no other country has an equivalent of DARPA. They keep talking about it. You know, Russia at one point said that they were going to create a DARPA. You have to have these totally unusual circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so when European countries say, you know, oh, we're going to create uh, an agency like DARPA, it, what they're really just saying is they're going to spend some research money and try to do it creatively. Right. It's not the same thing. As, as an unprecedented set of conditions that led to the creation of DARPA in 1958. Okay, we've got about five minutes left here. Uh, would you think it would make any difference if they had a different kind of uniform? Something that really... Uh, uh, well, um, since two th about two-thirds of the program managers are civilians, okay. I don't know um, about that. Sometimes, I mean, you know, the uniforms, aren't, I mean, NASA, I always thought that if NASA dressed like kind of cooler you know they, they like nasa to me is um because i'm a long you know a lifelong science fiction fan but i always kind of kept an eye on the space program but they were always like kind of boring you know they just never they didn't brand well i don't think yeah well i mean nasa is mostly engineers oh, okay. um but that you know nasa nasa got to the moon um, yeah it. i know <laughs> that explains it right <laughs> um, um, Maybe DARPA needs a better logo. You know, yeah, know. That, that's what I mean, like a cool logo or something, or their own TV show. So uh, let's, we got like four minutes left. Let me just uh, throw a, a, a couple more names out. And I, I urge everyone to get this book, The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon Agency that Changed the World, basically Pentagon's uh, mad scientist. Um, has anyone approached you about doing a movie? You know, like a lot of book authors, we got a lot of approaches from people for different ideas of series and movies. And I always talk to these people, but nothing ever comes out of it. And I'm okay with that. Yep. You know, I think, um, you know, it would be hard uh, to make a movie. You'd have to choose a story, a person. Oh, well, um, I, would I, 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 would choose, I would choose yeah. uh, Tony Tether. I mean, he's a fascinating person. and They started a lot of fascinating work at DARPA. You know, maybe some someday. Yeah. He's a funny guy. I mean, you know, on the list I, of I people. I would certainly watch a good movie about DARPA. Yeah, the, 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 of the list of people, he was at the top because he's a real character. And he's just, um, you know, some of the things that, you know, he's kind of unsure of himself, but they kind of work out in any way. And, um, and that was another thing, too, is that you said that not many employees stay there very long. And it seems like they go through directors like um, – almost every year. They don't stay very long. Why don't they stay very long? Well, in part, if you look across, it's it's now a political appointed position. And basically, political appointees across government only average, I don't know, about two to three years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Tony Tether was there, I think, almost eight years, maybe oh. even eight years. Steve Hasek was there seven years. But mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. Most of the directors were there for only like two to three years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
I think they transition out for the same reason political appointees across government transition out. It's it's all consuming. Yep, sure. I, I, I will say that any director of DARPA is working, you know, seven days a week and extraordinary hours. Yep. And as enjoyable and as rewarding as that is, I think for anyone that, that gets to be quite hard. Yep. You do it and then you, you move on. You know, that's how things kind of go yep. down there. Do they pay them well? Well, it's it's on the federal pay scale, um, so it's it's certainly you know, it's 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 a senior level appointment. Mm -hmm. um, oh. But that actually that could go to your other question of why they don't stay long. I don't know what that is today, but it's probably a little under two hundred thousand. So if you mm -hmm. think about someone who's the head of DARPA, they can easily go in. You know, I'm assuming, but you know, for a you know five hundred thousand million dollar salary in the private sector. So I think finance you know, financial right. draws and reason people leave. It's like a boot camp and then you can go on to some military contract or whatever and you'll always be the guy who ran DAPA. That's good. Yeah. So, um, listen, we're coming to the end of the interview, and thank you very much for uh, joining us tonight in this like kind of strange time. Uh, so yeah. uh, Sharon Weinberger, who is the uh, author of The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DAPA, The Pentagon Agency That Changed the World, just go and get it because it's a very, very, very readable book on a subject that, you know, I could see someone else doing it, and it would be just like a, book, uh, a doorstop, you know. But let me just ask you one last question. Now, wasn't there— a guy who was the head of DAPA, and he thought he was taking a meeting with McDonnell Douglas, but it was actually McDonald's hamburgers, or was it vice versa? Oh, yeah. This was the head of, of the person who started a lot of their biological work, um, where he he worked for McDonald's. Okay. He was their, basically okay. their science and technology guy, and they, they had created a, a new sort of wrapping that I believe was going to be sort of um, – uh, that was going to be sent. They thought it could be used by the military because it was actually going to be used right now for coronavirus. Very, very sanitary. And someone said, you should pitch this to the military. Mm -hmm. So he started calling around and someone told him to call DARPA. And um, the head of DARPA ended up taking his call because they were confused. He said McDonald's and they thought he said McDonald of McDonald Douglas. And so he got through to the head of DARPA. Yes. Hey, anyway, you can get in. <laughs> anyway, you can get into the top guy. You know why not? But uh, McDonald's, exactly. McDonald Douglas, who knows? So, listen, Sharon, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it, oh, and you. we'd love Bye. to have we'd, lo we'd love to have you on for part two. Okay, because I'm just you know fascinated happy, with happy the book. To do that. And and I don't read many books, but this one I just like went through, and I, I I would I would almost ask you to autograph this copy, but it's just so dog-eared and so on and so forth. I'll buy a new copy. Well, here your address and I'll send you a new autograph copy. Oh, yeah. Well, don't do that. I know that that I know that's a drag for authors to do. But listen, th thank you, Sharon, for joining us. We really appreciate thank it. Yeah. Uh, come back anytime. Okay. The name once again, the Imagineers of War, Sharon Weinberger. Uh, just go buy it. And you're listening to Macaloney's Military Exhaust Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Mac Maloney's Mule Tracks. I'll show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. I'm in the home studio with the very lovely Lois Lane. Hi everybody. Also, we only have a couple minutes to say goodbye to the audience tonight. Thank you for joining me. It's been quite a show. It has been quite a show, as I've mentioned before, educational and entertaining. Educational and entertaining. Remember that, kids, when you're <laughs> listening to it, okay? I just want to thank everyone uh, you know, for joining us tonight. Uh, just uh, if you want your bag of swag, one last 
plug for the we just ask that you go to macmaloney.com click on the contact us button send your good old-fashioned mailing address because it does not magically transport through the internet you need do a mailing address to get all your fun pins and coasters and 3d decals a lot of cool stuff so just right bag of swag just go to macmaloney.com hit the contact button send us your mailing address and we'll get it right out to you. So it's been quite an evening, uh, Lois. I think we're having a selection from the band Sky Club coming up right after this. Mm, Sky Club, mm. one of my faves. Oh, really? Yes. Better awesome. than the Beatles? Better than the Bay City Rollers? <laughs> Bay City Rollers? Oh, my gosh. That's a reference to the past. I don't think anybody will know what that is. I think a lot of people do. They used to dress like them, right? Correct? Well, I had the socks. When you are in high school a few um, years ago? It was... Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Glad to hear you finally admit it. So thanks again for everyone listening in all around the world. And uh, until next time, this is Mac for Lois and the rest of the gang saying, be safe, be happy, and bye-bye.
to the story worth about my friend who fell to earth. He used to sell among the stars. You put his name on candy bars. But he loved the human race. This distinguished man from outer space. Because 